Well, if you don't mind taking the word of God, please, this evening and turning to the book of Psalms, number 139. Psalms 139. We'll begin our reading this evening with the first verse. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. And that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought on the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they're more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee. And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Seek the Lord in prayer. Our almighty, everywhere present God, we thank Thee that even there Thou wilt uphold us. And Lord, even tonight, where we are, in this place, gathered to hear your word, please help us. Please minister to our hearts. Please speak to us. Please, Lord, break fresh bread from heaven and fill our mouths with good things. We want to grow to be more like Christ. We want to see your glory. Lord, bless us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we considered what we called the knowability of God. And it was simply this, that we can know God, but we cannot know God fully. And we looked at Psalm 145 and verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And we noted that God is infinite, which simply means that He has no limitations. He cannot be contained. He cannot be bound. He cannot be circumscribed. He's like an ocean without a shore. God has no limits. And so, when you think about the fact that God is infinite with relation to time, He's eternal. He has no limits with regards to time. And we thought about that last Lord's Day when we considered that God is And the fact that God existed before anything. When he said, I am, 
And that, that fact tells us that he will exist after everything. God's infinity with regards to his knowledge, he has no limits with regards to knowledge, is called his omniscience. He knows everything. God's infinity with regards to space, space is called his omnipresence. He has no limits within space. He fills everything. The word omni in the phrase, um, the word omnipresence means all or every. So the word omnipresent refers to the everywhere presence of God. The everywhere presence of God. Now this is a very often misunderstood truth, not only by Christians, but it is certainly denied and misunderstood by many false religions. Deism was a false system from a long time ago. Um, this is something that Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin believed in. And they taught this. God created the world and then he retreated into some distant place and really had nothing more to do with it. So God was present in this location, but he wasn't present in the world. He spun it into existence and he left it to itself. Another false system, which is really the opposite, is what's called pantheism. And this teaches that God is one with the universe. So the first says God is completely separate from the universe. He has nothing to do with it. The second says God is one with the universe. This can be found in Hinduism and in the New Age movement, among other things. For them, God is everything. God is everything. There's a story told of a man who um, was in India and he was laboring among the Hindus and he said that he saw some Hindus going around strangely to trees and stones and they are tapping lightly on trees and stones and they are whispering, are you there? Are you there? Well, why were they saying such a strange thing? Because they thought that God was in the stone. They thought that God was in the tree. And in their ignorance, they're going around to the to trees and to stones and saying, are you there, God? Are you there? Now that's not just simply an isolated thing. There are people all over the world, not only in jungles, where they certainly practice this kind of a thing, where they worship nature and they think that God is nature, but it's found right, with, right in our own doorstep with things like the New Age where people identify God with everything. He's, he is everything. You know, it's amazing. There are Americans today asking the same question. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there, God? Are you there? Where is God? Where is he? We have people running to temples and holy sites. Are you there? Is God in a temple? Is God in a holy site? Pilgrimages, is he there? In some experience, is he there? Where are you? Where is God? And sadly, some Christians even are caught up in this kind of thing, running to signs and wonders or different kinds of experiences, trying to find where is God? Are you there? So where is God? Is he in the trees? Is he in the stones? Is he in a temple somewhere up in, a far, in the far reaches of some distant land? Where is God? Well, the Bible teaches us that God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And this is what we call the doctrine of the omnipresence of God. The everywhere presence of God. And so, I want us to consider this evening the omnipresence of God. And first, I want us to think about the meaning of the omnipresence of God. In a variety of ways, the scriptures declare that God is everywhere. And if you have your Bibles open, if you could turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 to 24. And as we're turning there, I want to just read a couple of texts that speak to the fact that God is everywhere. 1 Kings chapter 8 Verse 27 says, But will God indeed 
dwell on the earth. Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. The temple couldn't contain the Lord. The heavens of heavens could not contain him. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And God is saying, listen, the heaven is it's my throne. And he's using figurative language here. The earth is my footstool, and you want to make some place for me to dwell? And we see this even more clearly in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24, where the prophet writes, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? Do not I fill heaven and earth? This is exactly what is meant by God being everywhere. He fills heaven and earth. But when we think about what it means that God fills heaven and earth, we need to be very careful. And I think the first thing we should do is explain what this does not mean. God fills heaven and earth. First, Jeremiah does not mean, as we said earlier, that God is one with the heaven and the earth. Remember that John chapter 4 and verse 24 tells us that God is a spirit. And they that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. And this means that God does not have a body. God is not physical. He has no physical aspect to him. He is a spirit. And whenever the Bible talks about God having hands or eyes or a mouth, it's merely figurative language. God is a spirit. He doesn't have any physical aspect to him. And so he can't be one with the universe because God is a spirit. He can't fill heaven and earth in that way. He's fundamentally different from created things. Like this podium I'm standing at. This is made up of matter. It's physical. God can't be the podium because God is not physical. God is a spirit. And then second... God is not simply bigger than the heavens and the earth. When Jeremiah says God fills heaven and earth, he doesn't mean God is just bigger than the heavens and the earth. God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere, it's not like, for example, Noah's flood, where the waters came from heaven and burst up from the earth and there was so much water that it filled the earth. It's not that there's just so much God that He fills heaven and earth. It's not just that God is bigger. You really can't refer to God as big. God is infinite. He is absolutely an entire other category. It's not that the earth and the universe is very, very large, but God is just a bit bigger. No, God is infinite in His size. In fact, you really can't even speak of God truly as having any real size. He's infinite. So God is not just bigger. Third, Jeremiah does not mean that God fills the heaven and the earth in parts. I don't know if you've ever blown out a candle and the smoke comes out of that smoldering wick and it fills the room. And so you'll see that, that smoke filling the room until it dissipates. Because the particles of that smoke are dissipating throughout the room and there are parts of that smoke all around the room. Well, the everywhere presence of God does not mean there are parts of God everywhere. It's not like you smooth, you smooth out a tablecloth until it lays over the whole table. And there's a corner here and a corner there. The Bible teaches us that God is everywhere fully. God is everywhere 
in the fullness of all he is. We read Psalm 139, and I would draw your attention to the way the psalmist says this. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. He says, if I make my bed in hell, meaning the grave, the place of death, behold, thou art there. You see the way the psalmist speaks of God's presence, thou. Not a part of God. You can't even divide God up into parts. Thou art there. You can't say there's a little bit of God here and there's more of God here. Thou art there. Every square inch of existence is filled to the full with all that God is. As Psalm 139 tells us, Thou art there. Fourth, Jeremiah, when he says that God fills the heavens and the earth, he does not mean that God is simply the space that contains everything. That God is just a container that contains everything. And follow me here with what I mean. If you say that God is just like a big container that contains everything, then you're saying that God exists in space. Now, only created things can be said to have existence in space and in time. But God, as we said earlier, He is above and beyond all of that. God just fills everything with, in, above, under, and in everything. So you can't just simply say that God's, it's not like God's just a big, huge, empty space. And He said, I'm going to create things to fill all that I am. No, God was fully whole in Himself. God is not simply just space that was filled. So what does it mean that God fills the heaven and the earth? It means that God is a spirit who fills every square inch of space equally with His whole being. So that means that wherever we are, God is there fully. Now that is an astounding thought. And it has many ramifications. Just to note one, we'll look at more as we go on. This is a deterrent to sin. I'm reminded of the other day when my daughter Joanna wanted to stick her finger in the electric socket. And I smacked her hand and said, no. I had to do it a couple of times until she realized, okay, daddy doesn't want me to stick my finger in the electric socket. And then she stopped doing it because she knew if daddy was there, she's going to get a smack on her hand. But when mommy came, oh, when mommy came and took her around the kitchen table, you see her look right back at me and stick her finger in the electric socket. Or try to. She didn't actually do it. But see, there was a difference. In the presence of daddy, she was afraid to do it. But in the presence of mommy, who didn't smack her because she wasn't there when that happened, she had no fear. You realize that you are always in the presence of God. That means that, that, means that when you go on the computer and you're doing something there that perhaps is not pleasing to God, God is there fully. And the fact that God is everywhere means that God knows everything. That's another matter. But God is there. And you can erase your history, but God is there. He sees it all. He knows everything. God is with you Mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, when you go home and no one knows what goes on in your home, no one knows perhaps how you speak to your wife or how you speak to your children, God is there. He's there. You realize that the eyes of God are everywhere beholding the good and the evil. That God is in the most intimate places of your life. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot run from Him. You cannot escape Him. He's absolutely everywhere in the fullness of His being. And that's why the psalmist says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. 
You could take a boat out into the very middle of the ocean where no one is there and maybe only a satellite could pick up where you are. But God is there. And if the knowledge of God's presence everywhere does not deter us from sin, it tells us what kind of estimation we have of God. Because I know right now, I know right now, that we all can think of people, because I can, that if they were in our presence, we would shape up. And are you telling me that we would shape up in the presence of a man? But the fact that God is present means nothing? God is here. He's here tonight. He's in this church. God is everywhere. As I said, there are many ramifications. Simply one should deter us from sin. So we see the meaning of God's omnipresence. He's a spirit who fills every square inch of space equally with his whole being. But secondly, I want us to consider the manner of God's omnipresence. When we look at Scripture, it becomes evident that although God is everywhere, He's not everywhere in the same way. He's not all places in the same way. Although God is not more present in one place and less in another, He is present in a different degree and in a different manner in different places. For example, the Bible says that God is far from the wicked and yet near to the righteous. Well, if God's everywhere present... How can the Bible say that he's far from the wicked and near to the righteous? Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. How can the Bible say that God will dwell with a man with a humble and contrite spirit if he's already everywhere? Deuteronomy 26 verse 15 describes God's throne as being in heaven, but then Genesis 18 and verse 21 tells us that God came down from heaven to visit Sodom. So was God in heaven and then He left heaven? How could God be in heaven and then come down if He's everywhere? What does this mean? Well, certainly Scripture cannot contradict itself. So we must understand these texts in a couple of ways. In the first way, we understand this. God is spoken of using human terms. You need to understand that. There are many times in Scripture that God is referred to using human terms. I mentioned already, hands, eyes, mouth. Those things are not a reality insofar as God is concerned. They're figurative. He's a spirit. But there are certain times in Scripture when human terms are used. God's um, being in heaven and having heaven as His throne or the earth as his footstool. The reference in Genesis 18.21 to the Lord coming down to visit Sodom is this exact thing. God did not actually come down in the sense that he left and vacated heaven. He didn't vacate heaven. He's everywhere. But this is just human terminology to explain that God drew near to look at Sodom, or God considered Sodom. He even drew near with with the angel of the Lord to Sodom. So this is simply the language of men. In the second place, God manifests himself in a greater or less degree in some places than another. Everyone will admit, I think, that there is a vast difference, there was a vast difference, between God's presence and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the wilderness surrounding it. There is something different about God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Now, God is everywhere. But He was in the Holy of Holies in a different degree, in a different degree of manifesting Himself. We find this spoken of in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 14 of the temple. It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one. And this is Solomon and bringing the ark 
of the covenant to the temple, which was a symbol of God's presence, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Well, hadn't the Lord filled the house of God before? Well, certainly God was in the house before. But now God manifests Himself. And He fills the house with a cloud and literally the priests cannot even stand to minister. This is something that has been known in history. In times when God has visited His people. Talk about revival. God visiting His people. It's not that God wasn't there and all of a sudden He's there. God was there all along. He's just unveiling Himself. He's manifesting Himself in His glory. He's demonstrating who He is in the power that He demonstrates in saving grace. God was there all along. And I would say a word to Christians. We want to seek the Lord. We want to know Him. We want to find Him. We don't need to go anywhere but where we sit this evening. He is there. You want to know the pathway to get to God? James chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. It says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. The way to God is through humility of heart, confession of sin, and a seeking His face in prayer. He's already here. You don't need to ask God, God, would you come? Would you come, Lord, here? When we ask Him to come, we're asking Him to manifest Himself. But we're not saying, God, come in the sense that He's not here. He's here. You don't need to go anywhere but where you sit. You're as close to God spiritually as you desire to be. And the way to God is through confession and faith in Christ. Another example of God manifesting His glory is Revelation chapter 1. Just to remind you of this as well. When John sees Jesus, he falls as a dead man because he sees Him in His glory. But remember at the Last Supper, he was leaning on his chest. See, there's a different manifestation of the presence and the glory of Christ. And so although God is everywhere, He's not everywhere in the same degree. Third, God is in some places in a different sense than others. Let me explain what I mean by this. A good example of this is to consider the presence of God in heaven and hell. Is God in hell? Some people say God is not in hell. People are separated from God in hell. And they'll turn to a passage like this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where the Bible says this, that God, that Christ, excuse me, will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. He'll come in flaming fire and He'll take vengeance on those that don't know God and don't obey the gospel of Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And that little word from has the idea of away from the presence of the Lord. We know of other texts where it says that we will be, excuse me, that those that don't know Christ will be cast out of His presence. But then we also read in Revelation 14 and verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation, and He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So is God in hell? Well, God must be in hell because He's everywhere. The key to understanding these two passages is the Greek word that's translated. The word translated away from in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9 is a word that speaks of someone's face. The face of someone or the favor of someone. And it means away from the favor of God. Away from the goodness of God. Away from the mercy of God. Away from the love of God. 
But in Revelation chapter 14, it's a different word used. And that word for presence speaks of a literal presence, a location presence, that God Himself is present in hell. But He's not present in the same sense as He is in heaven. In heaven, God is there in mercy and love and favor and goodness. But in hell, He is demonstrating His wrath. He's there in a different sense. And so when the Bible says that God is far from the wicked and He's near to the righteous, He's removed Himself from the wicked spiritually because His favor is not towards them. And all that is good. Remember we talked about last week that God is love and God is joy and God is all of these wonderful things. If a man who is lost is separated from all of the goodness of God, it means that he will know no joy, beauty, majesty, mercy, peace, happiness, absolutely everything that is good, everything that's desirable, is ultimately who God is. And so the man or woman who goes to hell will be separated from everything that is good forever and ever and ever. There will be nothing good there. But God is in a very different way present with his people. Ezekiel chapter 48 verse 35 prophesies of the name of the church. It was round about 18,000 measures in the name of the city from that day shall be. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. See, there's a very special sense in which God is with his people. He is there in favor. He is there in grace. He's there in love. He's there in mercy. The Lord is there. That's the name of the church, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And you're a member of the church if you're saved. You may not be a member of this local church, but you're a member of the universal church. And the Lord is in the midst. In Psalm 132, verses 13 through 14, the psalmist wrote of Zion, the church of God. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. This is what the Lord says about you. This is what the Lord says about your heart. Your wicked, sinful heart. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. He wants to be with you. He loves you. He delights to dwell in you. He says, for I have desired it. This is my rest. I've made my abode in you. And this is one of the greatest comforts the church can ever know. Any man or woman or child who knows God, this is the greatest, one of the greatest comforts they could ever know. When facing trials, hear the word of the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I will be with thee. It doesn't matter how deep the waters are that you are crossing. It doesn't matter how deeply you feel this pain that you feel and experience, the confusion, not knowing where am I going to go, what is going on in my life. God says, fear not. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. I'm with you. And he says, the fire, it shall not kindle upon thee. You won't be burned. What does God mean by that? He's saying, all my purposes towards you are love. And so, at the end of the day, it's not really burning you. There may be pain, but you will not be destroyed. It's for your good. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 5, God is described as a wall of fire round about us. 
Nothing can penetrate His loving purposes, His goodwill towards us. Nothing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in a very special sense, the Lord is there in His church. Jehovah Shammah is in us. The Lord is with me. He's a defense. He's a wall of fire around me by night. He's my strong tower. He's my high place to which I go and hide. He's the cleft of the rock in which we hide from the pestilence. Psalm 91 says that we are under the covert, the shadow of His wings. God says, I'm present around you. I'm surrounding you. Nothing will touch you. Nothing will touch you that I do not allow. God has to permit something to come your way. Nothing will come your way that God has not permitted. He has a wall of fire about you. When you're fearful of failure, when you feel your weakness, when you're called by God to do something, but you feel, I can't do this. I can't. I can't be the mother I need to be. I can't be the father I need to be. I can't be the husband. I can't be the wife. I can't. I can't fight this temptation. I can't do it, Lord. This is a great comfort. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, the Lord says, Have not I commanded thee, be strong and have a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Why? For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. He says, you can't do it, but I can do it, and I'm with you. I'm present with you. And my strength is with you. My strength is with you. I'm reminded of a story in the Old Testament when one of the prophets placed his hand on the hand of a man who was shooting a bow and it was symbolic that God's hand would be upon them. And God, as it were, places His hand of power and strength upon us and He says, I'm with you. I'm with you, child. I'm with you, child. David, lift up your sling and let it fly. I'm with you. I'm with you. I will be with thee. Fear not, Joshua. When you march around Jericho, I will be with thee. When you're facing death, this is a comfort. Psalm 23 and verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff that comfort me. Brother or sister, one day the time will come when you will die just like me. I don't know where it may be, perhaps in a hospital room, in a hospital bed, and you may crawl up into a fetal position and look at the wall and maybe there will be no one in that room. Memories of your life will flash through your mind and you'll realize that this is my last moment. I'm about to die. And in that moment, not one person from this earth will be with you. He will not be going with you. Nothing you possess will go with you. Your friends will not go with you. Your mother, your father will not go with you. No one will go with you. But God will go with you. When you cross over Jordan, God will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Though I walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I don't fear because he's with me. His presence is with you, even until death. I will be with you. You see, God's, God's presence, although he's everywhere, he's not everywhere in the same degree, he's not everywhere in the same sense. We want to see Him manifest Himself in a greater degree. And, and if you're a Christian, remember that God is with you in favor and blessing and goodness. He's with you. And I just want briefly to say something about God's presence in Scripture as far as the theme of God's presence. And this also opens up our understanding a little bit further to understand that God's not everywhere in the same degree. 
beginning with the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, we have to understand that God's relationship with man fundamentally changed when Adam sinned. God was everywhere then and God was everywhere after they sinned. Excuse me, God was everywhere before they sinned, everywhere after they sinned. But God was not in the garden in the same way. After Adam sinned, you remember that they were banished from the garden. So although God was still with them, the Garden of Eden was a symbol of fellowship with God. You see, now God was no longer with Adam in favor and goodwill and grace. He could not say, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Adam was banished from God's presence. And so God veiled his glory. He hid himself. Why? He hid himself because he's holy. And because Adam now became a sinner, and if Adam would see God's holiness, he would die. So God veiled himself. They became distant from God, and all of humanity was estranged, alienated from God. After this, God began to reveal himself periodically to some. Enoch, he was a man who walked with God and was not. To others, and to Noah, he entered into a covenant with him. The Lord then came down and revealed himself to Abraham and called out a people unto himself, which should be the vehicle of the return of his presence into the world. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And then he confirmed the covenant with Isaac and Jacob. But the greatest manifestation of God's presence up to this time was at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16, the Bible says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people was in the camp trembled. Once God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, He came like a cool breeze walking in fellowship with Adam. But now, something's very different about the manifestation of God's presence. Now, on the top of this massive mountain, He comes down with thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and the voice of a trumpet and all the people tremble and shriek at the sight of God. Very different from the way it was before. And God says, you rope off this mountain. If anybody comes and touches it, they're going to die. No one can come into my presence or they will be destroyed. Why? Because of sin. Isaiah said in chapter 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. God was manifested in power and glory and holiness because of the sin of humanity. And the only sight of God that man without Christ will ever have is holy power and wrath and glory on Sinai. The law. Well, the amazing thing is is that God then gave the law to Moses and he established the covenant of the people and then he gave them the blueprint for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was filled with the symbolism of the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. I don't have time to talk about that, but it was filled with the symbolism of the Garden of Eden. And in the tabernacle, we have the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, we have the mercy seat above the ark overlaying it. The mercy seat covered perfectly the exact dimensions of the law. We find an amazing verse in Exodus 25, verse 22, And there will I meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. God says, I will commune with you in this inner sanctuary, a new Eden. I will return in my presence. See, God comes in thunder and lightning off of Mount Sinai, as it were, and now He is in this Holy of Holies. And he says, nobody can come into my presence, only the high priest once a year, and he has to come with blood. He has to come with the blood of an animal. And he has to sprinkle that blood on the veil, sprinkle that blood as he walks up, and then lay the blood over the mercy seat. Because that blood alone propitiates or exhausts the wrath of God. 
because the punishment for sin must be met. And when that lamb or that animal was brutally slaughtered and the blood was drained from its veins and poured around the altar and poured on the mercy seat, it was a picture of God's wrath and judgment being fulfilled in the punishment of another. And so God dwelled with men in this tabernacle where only a man could enter into the Holy of Holies by blood. Years passed. The temple was built by Solomon and God manifested His presence above the mercy seat. But one day, a man prophesied of named Jesus Christ entered into the world and He was born. And the Bible says that He tabernacled among men. That literally God now, it was almost as if He broke out of the Holy of Holies and He entered into the body of a man and He robed Himself in human flesh. Not merely badger skins like the tabernacle, but human flesh. And the Bible says in Colossians 2 and verse 9, For in Him that is in Jesus dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, in Jesus Christ... God dwelled in the highest degree and the greatest manifestation in Christ than in anywhere else in all of history. In Christ was the fullness of God's presence because God took into union with Himself a man. And Jesus Christ is called the mercy seat in Romans 3 and verse 25. And Christ is the lamb that was slain. Christ is the mercy seat upon which the blood was placed without going into all that that means, suffice it to say that Jesus Christ made a way for man to enter back into Eden. And the amazing thing is, is that God chose to come from His holy glory and to veil Himself in the body of a man and bear their wrath and punishment so that they in turn in union with Him could enter back into His holy presence with Him. Because man could never cross the gulf back into God's presence after they sinned. But God crossed the great chasm. And God, as it were, came running after, chasing after sinful man in order to bring them back into the presence of God. And then the presence of God comes in the fullest in glory. When all of us who are saved know the fullness of God's presence, as the Bible says in John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Wait a second, what? Think about that. Behold my glory? God said on Sinai, if you come up to this mountain, you're going to die. If you come into my presence, you'll be destroyed. I'll break forth and destroy you. Remember one time in the Old Testament, the lid of the mercy seat was opened and thousands died. Because God was there in all of His glory and there was no mercy seat. How could it be that now we will be able to behold the glory of Jesus face to face? It's because of what God has done through Christ. There's no more wrath. There's no more punishment. And so although God is everywhere present, in heaven and glory, in the new heavens and the earth, He will be fully manifested in all of His unveiled glory, in the highest degree of what He is. And we mere sinners will be able to stand there and the blaze in the blaze of His glory and be able to stand there and worship Him and not be consumed because of what Jesus Christ has done. So I'm running out of time, but just a note, a word to anyone who's not saved. You don't need to travel anywhere to find God. God is right here. And the way to God is this. Humble yourself Repent of your sin. Stop acting like your sin is no big deal. 
It cost God's son his life. Stop acting like sin is something to laugh at. Stop acting like it's something to joke about. Sin is a serious thing. Humble yourself and repent. Repent. Turn away from living that life. Turn away. Repent. Turn. And embrace Jesus. Jesus stands with arms wide open saying, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus has made a way back to God. He's taken your punishment. He's taken your sin upon himself. He says, just trust in me. Come to me. May the Lord bless his word to us this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for what thou hast done through Jesus Christ. And that now we know that the Lord is there and he is among his church. He is with us a wall of fire about us, our defense, our strong tower, our confidence, our shield, our fortress. We praise Thee. And we pray, if there's anybody here tonight who does not know You, Lord, that they would humble themselves, that they would repent of their sin, that You would cause their conscience to be hot with guilt and break their hearts for what they've done, break their hearts for who they are, break their hearts as they think about what Jesus Christ did. We pray for those outside of this church that don't know Christ. Oh Lord, that thou wouldst bring them to thyself. Lord, you are everywhere present. Oh, we pray that you would manifest your presence in such a way that men and women, wherever they are, in their homes or everywhere, that they would come under a conviction of sin, that they would feel their sin before a holy God. Lord, bless thy people. Be with them. For Jesus' sake, amen.